Well, good evening. This is Britta Smith, the historian for the neurology section. I'm here with my new member of the historian committee, Debbie Struksma. And this evening we are here with Dr. Nancy Bill and Dr. Darcy Umfred for a dual interview here at CSM in rainy uh, Anaheim, California. So first question is, how do you two know each other? How do we not know each other? We've <laughs> yeah, so we served on the board together in the California chapter many, many years ago and became, you know, sort of companions about going to the meetings together, serving on the board and becoming personal and professional friends and uh, traveling with other things besides professional meetings. A great friendship over many years. Absolutely. And our husbands get along. So that's even a nicer thing, you know, because then we travel. And our kids. So her son lived with us for a while. He was wow. doing an internship in the Bay Area, and so he came and stayed at our house while he did part of his graduate studies and things like that. So we continue to see them. Her other son is our lawyer <laughs> <laughs> for, you know, planning, and he does retirement. Well, he is a... Estate planner. Estate planner. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. he's our estate planner. So there you go. Wow. Yeah. So it's been. How many years do you think? Oh yeah. At least twenty-five, maybe. Or maybe even thirty. I'm just yeah, trying to think because we're getting older together. Okay. <clears throat> so it's been a long time. Well, and we both were involved in our respective educational programs. So, right. You know, we. Mm -hmm. We were chair. It's the yeah. same time I was chair in San Francisco. She was chair. And, UOP, <coughs> so that brought us together in other venues besides just the fact that we have fun traveling together. All right. Oh, wow. Well, Nancy, you became a physical therapist in 1963 and then got your MPH in 1968. And tell us about your first job. So my first job was at Children's Hospital in the East Bay. Children's now is part of UCSF, interestingly enough. And um, we worked 24 hours on call every other day. So we saw inpatients and outpatients, and the population was children with cystic fibrosis who were you know, in a pulmonary crisis. And then during the day, it was primarily kids with cerebral palsy and you know, other kinds of head injuries and things like that. And there were only two of us. So we were 24 on, 24 off, 24 on, 24 off. It was a very interesting first job, and uh, I learned a lot. And uh, I didn't have any children at that time, but I could see that there were some challenges in families that had children with chronic disease or developmental disabilities or even traumatic, often motor vehicle accidents because mm -hmm. somebody didn't put the child in a mm -hmm. car seat and you know things like that. So it was, it was challenging, and, and we over the years actually gave up our role in, in pulmonary mm -hmm. rehab and postural drainage, and that's what our 24-hour mm -hmm. on was, is uh, you know, making sure we were doing postural drainage around the clock. <clears throat> and then that ultimately went to you know, our, our um, you know, therapists who are just doing postural drainage. And I think we've missed something there. You know, there was more to drainage. There was talking about exercise and physical activity and posture and, mm -hmm. you know, breathing strategies, not just doing mechanical 
vibration and the drainage. But that was that was my first job after graduating from PT school. All right, Darcy, I've had a little difficulty finding out when you graduated from physical therapy I school. I graduated from the University of Washington in 68. And then right. I came, but I was from California, so I grew up in the Bay Area, like Nancy. And uh, so I came back to California. And uh, my first job was at Fairmont Hospital, which is a rehab facility in the Hayward area. And um, for me, it was just a wonderful experience because you know, the first <clears throat> time I met a gentleman in a vegetative state, uh, you know, I went to put my hands on him. You know, at that time, they were at the county hospital for maintenance until he died. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> so, you know, I went up and what, how, the, how the PT functioned there was you evaluated them and then you delegated range of motion to your aide. And I put my hands on to start doing range of motion testing. In my head, I heard, get me out of here. And I thought, okay, did I just hear that? You know, but I knew at one level I couldn't delegate him to the, because at one level he had talked to me, you know, at some level. And, um, you know, he was the first patient that I worked with that came out of the vegetative state. And, uh, you know, I had, three others at that facility do that. And, um, you know, it put me on an avenue of, of unknowns because, of course, people weren't supposed to do that. And, you know, I've been on that same adventure working with head injuries my whole professional life and probably have had 40 or 50 people come out of their vegetative states. You know, and I always know when it happens because usually I'm behind them working on the postural system and their whole they just change, you know, I don't know if I, I'm just feeling energy, I don't know what, but I can tell that they're now here. And, uh, you know, that, that as a neuroscientist, I wanted to know what I was doing and how was it being done and can I explain this? And of course, I'm so far from explaining, I can explain components of it, but, you know, it's still beyond our understanding in science. But I think as a therapist, you know, it's well within our scope to have that happen. And so the, the scientist wants to know how and why and how do you explain it. And the intuitive warrior goes, just enjoy the adventure. You know, it's just, it's an honor to be part of somebody's life when that happens. So. Now you chose to go into, after your, I believe after your first job, you chose to go into program development in terms of uh, starting physical therapy programs. Is that true? Actually, I went into the public health system and <clears throat> did public health hospital in San Francisco and worked there for several years and then went to a county facility. But when I came back to the Bay Area, mm -hmm. I went back to get my master's degree because that was when Social Security and um, Medicare and Medi-Cal, you know, was established. So I was very interested in participating in this sort of team effort to try to understand what national healthcare services were going to do and how physical therapists could actually play a role in that very early time folk, you know, time period of of Social Security. And so in the the Masters in Public Health at Berkeley, it was primarily physicians and there were no other physical therapists there, there were a couple of their health educators and things like that. So it was quite a an experience to see that it's a team effort, you know, it's not mm -hmm. 
you know, it's health policy, then it's a team of people working together, and it was really important, in my view, to have physical therapists be part of the team. So when I got my master's, I actually went to UCSF and called up the Division of Community Medicine, and I said, I think, I think you need me. And he goes, and, and why do I need you? And I said, well, you know, I've got my master's in public health, I'm a physical therapist, and you don't teach anyone in medical school about rehabilitation, and I think you need someone like me, you know, in your program. And he was so stunned that I would ask, you know, even propose that when he didn't know me, and I didn't know him either, that he interviewed me, and so I got my first job in community medicine, you know, after getting my master's. Now, is that when you started a therapy program there, or you were I was, more... I had nothing to do with the academic program of okay. physical therapy. So it started at UCSF in 1943. Mm -hmm. So I was on the Dean's Advisory Committee to the program, but I was not part of the program. Mm -hmm. And I was instead, you know, trying to participate as part of this interdisciplinary effort at UCSF to teach, you know, medical, nursing, pharmacy, and, and at that time, you know, trying to get PT to be part of that team of uh, bringing more comprehensive care to the clinic and primary care. Mm. So that's interesting. The vi so I guess my question is the vision that you saw back then, how, do you, how have you seen that sort of evolve? Could you foresee what we're in now in, in our healthcare system, could you foresee that back then? Was that some a vision as, as creating part of that team and, and kind of going into this new venture of Social Security and all these, this comprehensive health idea where we're at now? Is, is that the direction that you all originally had looked for? Well, that was kind of my goal because I knew the medical school didn't teach anything about rehab particularly nothing about PT, <clears throat> but isn't it interesting that it's taken almost 50 years right. for us to now have an interprofessional teaching component in the medical schools. Um, and, but my vision was that I would you know, try to broaden the thinking of you know, more traditional uh, physicians, and I was fortunate enough to marry a physician mm -hmm. who was a very traditional surgical practitioner who just couldn't imagine the medical school ever, you know, changing their approach. Um, but what was interesting is that I started, they had a um, kind of a campus-wide effort to try to get scientists to look at outcomes at that time. And I was the first director of this outcomes uh, study program through the University of California. And most of the scientific research were focused on you know, cellular physiology. They didn't really care whether you function better, you know, save your life maybe, but um, it, it's very interesting that it took so long. And then I was the evaluator for a new residency program that tried to combine primary care in pediatrics and internal medicine and create this interdisciplinary study for, you know, residents in medicine to kind of have a broader look at uh, how they practice healthcare. So, you know, we are now 50 years, almost 50 years later, that's kind of where we are. And I try to teach in the inter interprofessional program at UCSF. And that is a kind of a core new value, you know, within medical schools that everyone should learn who's on their team. And so it starts now in the first year that everyone comes together and mm. talks about 
you know, what their discipline is, what they do, how they do it, and you know, some role playing, you know, uh, of how to to uh, watch a video and how would you do it differently and. It's, it, I think it's it's interesting. It's definitely different than what we did, you know, mm -hmm. in the old days where we uh, tried to start a interdisciplinary seminar and have people come in so we could talk and present cases and things like that. But we were very singular. It didn't happen across all the departments. It was just in medicine. But now it's it's across all disciplines. Okay. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think both of you have been. Uh, educators in, in therapy programs, and I know you, Darcy, have been interested in how to develop um, expert clinicians, master clinicians. Um, what have you seen in what makes a successful educational program, and then what things make a successful clinician? I think they're very different. You know, I in my first job, actually, I was asked to resign over the phone when I called in ill one day. And, <laughs> and um, you know, I was going to leave the field. I didn't think I belonged because, you know, I, I'd never gotten anything but positive feedback. And all of a sudden, I'm asked to not come back, you know. And um, I had <coughs> taken a, a course in NDT from Stanford. And so one of uh, our, one of the individuals, leaders in our field, Sally Seaman, was teaching the course and I had gotten her excited about traumatic brain injury and so I saw her at a conference and she said you know you know how is this patient and that patient and I said well I don't know you know I'm no longer working there and she goes what happened and so I told her and she said you need to talk to me she says, and then it all came about she said you need to go back and get your master's degree so you can then come back in the clinic and even if you don't learn anything they'll think you learned it there and then you can do what you want to do in the clinical environment. And I, I believed that even as an undergraduate, I told, as I left the university, I was asked, what are my goals in life kind of thing. I said, well, what I want to do is develop an integrated approach to looking at neural rehab. Um, and so I was already formulating that model, I think, in my first job. And I think it was so far removed from how people treated, because people treated according to techniques. And I was trying to integrate it into what evidence is there, what do we know about the science, what do we know about movement, and what do we know about learning, you know, as part of the model. And so, you know, as I evolved a little bit differently than Nancy, but my real question always was, you know, what makes a master clinician? What, what makes it unique? You know, and as a master you know, what makes a master in anything? What makes a master teacher? What makes a master clinician? You know, what makes a master martial artist? Mm -hmm. uh, I think they're very similar strategies. How you use them are different. Um, but when you look at clinical masters, um, on a whole, they're very intuitive. They just seem to be able to know things about the patient. And then if they're a, a researcher or a scientist, they're then going to validate what they think is happening with their instruments to show that that's exactly. But because they have that intuitive nature to them, they almost have a one-upsmanship on their colleagues because their colleagues have to use all of the assessment tools to try to figure out what the problem is. Where the master, and a person can be a master almost right out of school because they have these, they have these 
cognitive and emotional strategies that allow them to have this kind of one-upsmanship on information. And then all, all they have to do is spend a little time validating that. And then they know, you know, and then they can use their ability to work with their patients um, and get feedback, both emotional feedback, motor feedback, sensory feedback, and they put it all together more quickly. I don't think that a master clinician necessarily is going to be a master teacher. And I think a lot of people go into education because they're bored in the clinic. They're not, they don't find the challenge in the clinic that a, a master clinician would find. Um, so <clears throat> they leave that. Now, when they leave the clinic, it doesn't mean they're not a competent PT and they can't be a tr tremendous contributor, but they'll either go into administration, into research, or into education. And my real concern about mastership and master education, teachership, is that you know, not having the masters that are clinicians teaching the courses, then the teachers that are teaching the courses are going to teach what's in the research, this is what you should be doing, this is, you know, what evidence is there, this is what you should be showing, where the, <clears throat> the master is going to say, that is the evidence, that's the core of our profession. But what's really fascinating about the profession from a clinical perspective is everything out on the periphery that we don't have the research for. That's where we need to look for answers. You know, and they're the ones challenged by the clinical world. And those aren't the educators, those aren't the researchers, and those aren't, you know, the administrators. So to assume that they're the ones that are going to be able to pose the questions in the future, um, I think is unrealistic. I think the vision comes from the clinicians. And I've always felt that, even as a teacher. You know, I felt that I could I went in as an assistant professor at 24 after I finished my master's degree, you know, and <clears throat> I felt that, you know, I could treat this many patients in my lifetime, but if I had so many students and I could get them as excited about the clinic as I was, I could treat that many more, you know, and later on as I went in to get my PhD and I, I was theoretically going into teacher education. If I could teach teachers to teach students, then I could actually touch this many more patients. And so it always, I think it always has been stemmed into my love of, of working in the clinic, you know, and, and my love of working with patients because I've yet to find a patient that doesn't teach me something, you know. Do you think more of our research needs to come from the clinic rather than from an institution? Uh, I don't, I do not believe that basic researchers are going to come up with ideas that will really drive the visionaries. I think the visions come from people who are out on the outside that are looking at the unknown and acknowledging that the unknown is there. Because once you acknowledge the unknown is there, then you can begin to formulate questions that can be researched. But it's not the researchers out on the periphery working with the unknowns. They're in the core trying to figure out the answers to what we already say exists. You know, so I, I just think, I think the real visionaries will almost always come from the clinic. So what are some ways to bridge that gap? Between Do you have any ideas academics about that? And but, yeah, between that clinician that's out there. Well, I think we have to empower clinicians to their role in this profession. 
and we don't I don't think that assuming that you know all the tests that can be done you know all the evidence and treatment that that is the solution to having the best practice I think that gives you the comfort that you know what you're doing but what's going to really lead to the evolution of the practice in the field is that you allow yourself to see the unknown. You allow yourself to have the patient do something that is not explained in the literature instead of saying that didn't happen because it isn't in the literature so it obviously didn't happen. I think a clinician that's actually honest will see things in the clinical environment that just aren't answered yet and they bring the questions to the researchers and I think it isn't until we, we literally link clinical practice with research, or clinical practice with education and research, that we're going to get a lot more of those unknowns answered. If that, I don't know if that answers your question well. Yes. You know, I mean, I, you know, I consider myself like Nancy, a neuroscientist, and I'm always trying to ground what's there, what's there, what's there in clinical practice research, what's there in science research that might give some explanation for things that happen in the clinic. Um, and, you know, how do you link those? How do you constantly try to link that? Because I'm comfortable knowing that I have a rationale for something that's happening. I'm much more comfortable knowing that, you know. But the intuitive me says, yes, but what about when this happened? You know, and, and all my right brain can do is stroke my left brain and say, it's okay, just put it in the file under unknown, we'll try to figure it out later. <laughs> you know, don't get too excited about this, just don't panic, you know, it's okay, you know, we'll just put it in that file of, you know, we don't have the answers yet. But I think that's what's fun about the clinic. And I think students don't get that excitement today. I don't think, I think they come out with the pressure they got to have the literature. They got to know what assessments to do. They got to know the evidence. They got to know how to set up the treatment program, you know. And it's all pressure instead of the joy of what being a clinician is all about, you know. And so I, you know, I, I'm biased, but I think we have to bring that back in to the educational environment and get the students excited about being clinicians, not, you know, that they're excited about being a doctor. So, Nancy, do you think that the transition from a bachelor's to a master's, bachelor's <coughs> to a master's to a doctorate has that benefited the profession and in how our patients do our outcomes? I, mean, I have a slightly different perspective than, than Darcy. I, you know, a good researcher is a special person. Um, mm -hmm. And that person is really partnered, I think, with a good clinician. Uh, and so, you know, I might have the skills to be the objective, you know, careful scientific investigator, but I might not have the ability. I, I might find and carry out my study and make a conclusion, but often integrating that finding into the clinic isn't successful. And, and when you're not somehow bridging that gap, either through a partnership or yourself, you know, continuing to have hands-on patient care interactions. Um, there is so much that we don't appreciate that comes from the patient, the motivation, the support of the family, the, mm -hmm. you know, the intuitive drive of someone to want to recover. And I could do all the right things, but if I haven't really matched 
what the guidelines might be with this particular patient and that sensitivity, I'm not going to be successful. And I think we do see a lot of that. Um, my concern, and you know, I have a bachelor's degree in PT. Um, my concern is we've gone to this doctoral level education, which more evidence-based certainly. Um, but the kids are graduating with a huge debt one for this long period of study. But they're also uh, kind of wagging this degree, you know, in front of everyone. I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor. Like, that's the difference in, you know, um, your practice because you have, happen to have a professional doctorate. Where I actually think it's this insightful, um, you know, intuitive problem solving where you take the facts, you take the science, and you take that sensitivity of applying it to the patient. And I, I think that's missing in some of our students. And I think they have great knowledge to some extent, but they're not packaging it up and applying it to the real person. You know, they're impatient, they're pushing something on a patient because that's what the study said, mm -hmm. and that's the evidence, but in fact that patient is really not ready or they're not in that phase of, of their recovery. Um, and we're not paying enough attention to that. And there's you know, there's a sensitivity of caring and um, interpersonal skills. And I think that's the hardest thing to teach people who go into the health professions, whether it be PT or medicine. Um, and it's hard, and when you don't have it, it's even harder to teach it you know, to someone who just doesn't have that sensitivity. But I think we're becoming much more aware of how important those you know, patient uh, behavioral characteristics are for making us successful. And I think we practice just as much psychology as we do physical therapy. And <clears throat> sometimes I wonder, am I really a physical therapist? I mean, what is it that I do differently? But the first is to listen, which I think is what Darcy is saying. Whether you listen through your hands or you listen to, uh, Beatrice was saying, asking the question. Um, if you don't ever ask the question, you don't really hear what the patient's thinking. And sometimes you don't ask the right questions. And you have to kind of ask it in a different way until finally they kind of spill the beans about what they're concerned about, what they're worried about. Uh, and, you know, the evidence isn't really what's going to make me successful with that patient. It's really listening and then trying to bridge it together. So I think it's unfortunate in education that once you get into the academic arena, you may not be seeing patients anymore. I feel lucky that I've seen patients for the last 53 years, and you know, I have never had a time in my life where I'm not seeing patients. Maybe it's only once a week, but I can tell you, you, you can't forget you know, these issues, particularly the sensitivity. But that then she's also about. a master clinician. As well as a master educator and a master researcher, you just don't get qualities very often in an individual that can bridge between those. Um, and I certainly never meant to suggest that researchers weren't relevant, you know, because I think they're critical. I just think they play a different role. You know, I think that um, it is like, it's like leadership, you know, that a leader has to be in the middle of the pack, has to be in the middle mm. up on something so that everybody can see. And, and the visionary is way out there looking, and, and the visionary knows where the field's going. It's obvious. But the leader has to see the line to the visionary. And then the leader brings the pack, while the visionary then is on, 
you know, farther out. And uh, so, that, you know, they're just different roles. I mean, that we have to have all of those roles to be a successful profession. Um, you just, at least that's my opinion. And, you know? and I think we're getting more and more sophisticated leaders <coughs> who are willing to be in that uh, sort of merging education with research, with leadership and advocacy and health policy. And um, these people that have started these databases, like the Rocky Mountain Database, what a wonderful opportunity to ask mm -hmm. questions about setting guidelines for care, because now you can do these meta-analyses, you can do these randomized trials, which most of us can never do within our own practice sites. Um, and I think that we now have the bridging of animal-based you know, research and, and basic science research to say, you know what, it is possible to say there are differences in this you know, accumulation of knowledge coming from animals, but there are things that you can do in basic research that you can never do in clinical research. And those findings have been instrumental in neuroplasticity and neuroscience. Like what? Well, like that you can change and reorganize the brain. I mean, we used to say that. We used to say clinically. Well, we knew it. You know, clinically, we could see these differences, but we had no proof mm -hmm. that we were really changing the underlying structure, mm -hmm. underlying organization about the way the brain processes information, and that people can do these functional tasks, even though neurons that used to do those kinds of things are gone because of a stroke or a head injury or you know, whatever the uh, neurodegenerative disease is. And a lot of that came really from basic science. It didn't come from clinical science. It oh, came absolutely. from mm -hmm. absolutely. integrating that basic science. And, you know, people like Randy Nudo, I can think back in our early um, conferences about uh, bringing some of these basic science researchers to our conferences and having them tell their story about you know, the basic physiology of, of change and plasticity. And it was, I think that's what the APTA did to really help us merge the basic science and the clinical science and ultimately the practice of, of PT. So I think we're on the right track. I think that we have to move carefully with health policy and healthcare reform to be in the right place. We were all talking a little bit about the emails I get about you know, being a physical therapist and you happen to be working in health and wellness, for example. And if I run a group class, I'm expected to, to meet the conditions of our Practice Act, which says I have to evaluate before I treat, and I have to document everything that I do. Now, all of a sudden, I have 10 patients and I'm doing a health and wellness program, an exercise program, let's say, for patients with Parkinson's, something I do. I can't do what the athletic trainer does. I mean, they have a, a yoga person that runs a Parkinson's class, or they have a, a, a you know, a, a dancer that runs a Parkinson's class, this dance for Parkinson's disease, or they have just a personal trainer who runs a class, and they don't have to record anything. They don't have to evaluate, and they don't have to do any kind of documentation. They don't have to follow any kind of you know, policy, and I have to do all of that because I'm a, a PT, right? And the question is, as, as Darcy was saying, we were talking earlier, what if you're trained in yoga, or you're trained in Pilates, or you're trained in Taekwondo, or you're trained in some of the other movements, Feldenkrais, that's probably a good example. 
and maybe I want to run this class as a yoga class, right? So if I'm going to run this as a yoga class, I really need to run it as a yoga instructor, and I shouldn't even admit that I'm a PT. And I haven't given up my license to practice, but I'm practicing now as a yoga instructor. Or let's say I play the piano and I'm using music and piano playing as a way to improve recovery post-rehab, then I need to be functioning as a music teacher, not as a physical therapist. But unfortunately, you know, we get caught in this, when am I a PT? And you're always a PT. But you may be doing something that really is not physical therapy, and you should be building for it. Build for the yoga class, build for the Pilates class, and make it cost effective. But as soon as I put my license as a PT, I have to meet all the criteria for mm -hmm. the practice. For a medically relevant. <coughs> medically practices. necessary. Yeah, and that's, that's a. But even a health and wellness in California. Mm -hmm. uh, because health and wellness is by law possible for us to practice health and wellness that we have the knowledge to do that but, yeah. but all the rules about evaluating and treating and documenting still apply whether I'm doing medically necessary as defined by Medicare or medically necessary maintenance as defined by Medicare or health and wellness which says I know you have Parkinson's or I know you've had a stroke but you know what you need to do uh, Maintain you know, health and 200 minutes of exercise and three times a week it's got to be aerobic and then you know sort of the Marilyn Moffat you know approach and or I'm just getting older and you know one of the questions you raise is it turns out if you live to be 75 those people who are 75 at least 30 percent of them will have Parkinson's disease before they die. I was kind of stunned to see those kind of statistics you know because uh, that's the age range I am in, mm -hmm. right? So y you get a Parkinson's disease and get it at 50, you know, but is it somewhat different that it's just the characteristics of aging? And you're, you know, you're weaker, you're not as strong, you're a little bit shakier, you've got, you know, uh, a little bit of a tremor and, you know, put all those together, now you are Parkinsonian-like. And if you live long enough, you know, it's rare that somebody goes out of this world without some signs of, of these kinds of things. So I think what, what's great for us now is physical activity is considered the most important thing for positive health. And as our population ages, that even the CDC says, look, that the worst problem we have today is physical inactivity. And who's the best person to help people know what kind of activity they need to do? And if you have a knee replacement or you have a hip replacement or you've got degenerative joint disease, or you've got rheumatoid arthritis, I mean, I don't really care. Find a way for that person to be active because they're going to feel better and they're not going to get diabetes and all the other secondary metabolic problems by being active. So I think we're in a great place, but it's not by waving our flag, I'm a doctor, I'm a doctor, I'm a doctor, and it drives me crazy. And when you look on the websites of some of your new graduates, you know, I'm doctor, so-and-so, I'm you know, I don't tell people to call me doctor anything. I'm Nancy. <laughs> right? And I know Darcy's Darcy and Beati's Beati. I mean, yeah. uh, I don't have, people don't have to ask, what do you want me to call you? They call me Nancy. And I, I also think, you know, that, that the profession is dealing with movement science. Um, and that's different than disease and pathology. And, you know, when we finally figured out that we were movement scientists, 
um, it creates a very different environment than if you're going to deal with disease and pathology, the medical model. But yet, when we were early clinicians, our patients, you know, were, were changing. And I can remember one doctor, when he came, he came out to evaluate my, the first gentleman that I treated with head injury, and he wanted to do massive surgery. I was going to turn him into a quad, sitting in a wheelchair. And the, the doctor, his hospitalist, but it was a primary, uh, at that time, asked me what I thought. And I said, well, I don't think he needs any surgery. You know, he doesn't have tight heel cords unless you pull him up on his feet and then he's scissoring and yeah, then he's got tight heel cords, but he has full range of motion. You know, there's no need to. So the doctor said, write a letter and deny the doctor to do that. So I wrote a letter and he signed it and the guy didn't have the surgery and the guy came back, the doctor, very well-known orthopedist, came back six months later and um, this gentleman was walking, and he said, he can't do that. <laughs> and I now, you know, I'm 21. You know, the famous doctor says, he can't do that. And I'm thinking, he's walking one foot after <coughs> the other. You know, he's got the balance, got the posture, he's got heel striking, what do you mean he can't do that? And then he laid him down and he tested proprioception kinesthesis uh, at prone. And of course, I've been working on all that stuff, you know, and of course, the the gentleman could do it all. You know, he knew exactly where his body was in space. And and uh, doctor says he can't do that either. He cannot do these things. And right then, I knew there was something different about the physician's model and the model that I was using. Because in my model, he could do those things, and that it was important. He was feeling good about it, and why you know, and I w couldn't say. You know, the doctor took him up, injected the patient with Valium to show that he still had the brainstem lesions, you know, and I'm sitting there going, I didn't say, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to get rid of or correct the brain trauma. I'm just trying to get the gentleman functional in movement. And it was right then that I began to see the difference between a medical model and a functional model. And I think, you know, it's taken you know, since then to the last, you know, 15 years, 10 years, but maybe, um, that our profession has actually gotten there. You know, and it wasn't until three-step that, you know, people began to be aware that, gee, maybe the Nagi model, which was based on disease and pathology, mm -hmm. isn't the best model for us. You know, um, I can remember going to, in the House of Delegates, you know, going, because I wanted to bring up the the World Health Model. And I got kicked out of the reference committee and totally couldn't bring it to the House because we do not need that model. That isn't the model we're using, you know, and we'll never use it. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting because I'll bet you, you in know, time. if we, in time, we're <coughs> going to just embrace that model, you know, but we had to make that shift. And I think, you know, we're making the shift from a baccalaureate to a master's to a doctor. My opinion is we never should have had a master's degree because a master's of science is an academic degree and we're a clinical profession. We should have gone from baccalaureate degree to a clinical doctorate and a, a, because that's a clinical degree. It's not an mm -hmm. academic degree. And I think we really kind of went around, you know, around the tree the wrong way to get to that. Um, but I, I think 
it's important for PT to be at a clinical doctorate because I think it then allows you to be at the table to communicate with other professions that have clinical degrees like that. You know, and I think you're seeing that in pharmacy. You know, pharmacy is going to make a huge change in the healthcare fields in the next 20 years. And you know, I'm not even sure doctors are going to be prescribing the medicines because they don't have the knowledge that a pharmacist has, and they don't have the knowledge of the interactions of all the other drugs a patient might be on, let alone all the things they bought at the health food store and and what they're eating. You know, they don't have that knowledge. Where a pharmacist has to have that area of clinical specialty, and they're moving from, you know toward automation of counting pills. The pharmacist doesn't have to do that anymore. And they're becoming a clinically based profession. And you know, I think we're doing similar. I think we're doing it though in movement science. We're doing it in functional understanding, you know, of movement. And uh, what that has to do with people's quality of life, whether they be wanting to exercise in a wellness clinic, whether they want to regain function after some sort of trauma, or whether they have a chronic condition but they want to maintain a quality of life, you know, in, in a program that really, you're not doing it for, to, you're not going to correct your Parkinson's by going to a Parkinson group. You just, it, that isn't, that isn't what, you're not going to change your pre-existing medical problem when you have a chronic condition. But you can change your functional situation and become more functional, and that'll allow you to interact in life better, which gives you a higher quality. That's what we do. The doctors have to deal with that chronicity of the disease and the pathology. We don't. We deal with where you're at and making it better. And I go, that's a pretty exciting place to be. You know? And I see that you know that is a future. And I think unless we give it up, you know, and I think we learned in the area of, of pulmonary physiology and pulmonary problems that, you know, we gave up something that we never should have given up because the pulmonary system yeah. is so critical in everything we do, <coughs> you know, um, and it just is, it's, it's sad how much we have given up and, and I, I worry that, you know, today um, students are coming up really good in evaluation and identifying the problems setting up treatment according to evidence base and delegating it to the PTA. And I go, but if the visionaries are the clinicians, then is it the PTA that's going to be the visionaries of the future of PT? Because the doctorates in PT are just evaluating. You know, and, and I think it's the same problems happening in medicine with the physician's assistant. You know, and they're getting more and more powerful because they see the patients. You know, and they see the problems where the physician may just be doing the examination, and so we've we've got we're going to have more stumbling along no, the way. No, I think we also have to move away from the one-on-one -on -one model. Yeah, I think we're going to have to do more group work. We're going to have to stimulate more motivation for patients to do things in the community and at home, and I think we have to be better integrators of technology because that's where we're going to get the repetition and know the opportunity to progress and, and keep people doing it, it they can't afford to pay just to see us um, sure. and I also think we're the best people to run groups of 
um, therapy programs for patients with chronic disease because then when someone has an exacerbation of pain or uh, impairment, then we can evaluate it, maybe a little more medically necessary, step them out of the group and set up a separate time for them and evaluate and kind of modify what they need to do. But no one else can run a group and do what we can do in that group in a movement-oriented uh, program. And so we just need to make sure that the policies are changing to allow us to be more productive rather than hampering what we can do. My email today was, you know, do I have to give up my license in order to run a wellness to teach program with a, you know, yoga. And, and that's where people are thinking because they don't, they can see, particularly in California, the restrictions that we have. Um, so we just have to be a little more intuitive, these new models and you know, model home, uh, you know, are being the first line of defense, evaluating and deciding what should happen, where the patient should go, where, where is a good place for them to have that further work up. So I do think we have to be kind of not hold on to our own one-on-one -on -one model. I think that's what we've all sort of been geared to, uh, but we have to we have to branch out. I mean, I, for 50 years, I always saw people one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. And then so started running a group. And you know what? If you really push activity level and you really push people to their potential, people are going to fall. So teach them how to fall. Teach them how to, you know, to move and to be more quick in the response and not get hurt. And and that's what we have to do. And we, we can't. We can no longer hold on to PT is only relating to medical you know, somebody with a medical condition because how we then are seen by the patient is that I have this medical condition and I go to PT and if I do these things, I will no longer have this problem. But they don't realize that so much of their problem is going to be a lifelong problem. And, you know, I can't, I can't fix them just like the doctor can't fix them. Um, but what we can do is empower them to fixing themselves. And that's going to be the key, you know, is, is how to get the patient buy-in that when they realize that they need to stay physically active for the rest of their life. It isn't just, you know, the, the 20 treatments they saw in PT and then they don't ever have to move again. You know, they, patients don't realize that, you know, PT isn't like you take, you know, your dosages of your antibiotics and in two weeks you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. You know, th that isn't what we do. You know, we empower them to move and then they have to realize that it's their responsibility to continue that movement. Right. So do you see the culture of America with uh, a great number and amount of sedentary time and uh, overeating, obesity, do, do you see this is really working against our profession right now? I don't know if it's working against us. It's I, creating a that, lot of people to come into the prevention. Yeah. <laughs> Especially elderly, you know, who are physically inactive and overeating the wrong foods. You know, so if we can make a significant change in lifestyle, the joy of, it, 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 it sounds really terrible. My husband is, hates to exercise for exercise itself. But he likes to ride his bike, and he likes to ski, and he likes to play tennis, and you know, so if he can do something that's fun, he loves to exercise. But if he has to exercise for exercise itself, 
he doesn't enjoy it. And I would say most people don't. Mm -hmm. So you have to make it fun. You have to, you know, you can tell people, well, why don't you watch a movie while you're, you know, running on your treadmill or walking on your treadmill? And that you, you only get to see, you know, 45 minutes of the movie, but now you're really motivated to get into it. And you, guess what? You, you go and the rest 45 watch minutes it to tomorrow? tomorrow and, you know, then the next day. And then finally you finish your movie and now you got a new one or books on tape or, you know, some oh, kind sweet. of learning thing that can be fun or watch the news or whatever. I mean, you've got to make it fun. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we don't, we forget that it's got to be fun. Well, it's got to be it's, fun, but it's also, it has to be something the patient wants to do. Yeah. You know, I can remember when I got called by the one of the VPs at the university, and her husband had had a stroke, <coughs> and he was a college professor too, um, in English. And he had gone, you know, acute hospital to rehab, to outpatient, to <laughs> home health, and now he's home. And he's, and you know, she says, and he's getting more and more debilitating. Well, can you come see him? I said, yeah, of course I went there the next 10 minutes. I mean, you know, when the vice president of the university calls, you immediately go, you know, and, and I went and I, I talked to him and I said, well, what do you do during the day? And he said, well, you know, I get up in the morning and my wife helps me to the bathroom. And then, you know, I, when she goes to work, you know, she sits me in my chair and she gives me my, you know, Pitcher of water, you know, and I drink water every hour because I've been a diabetic for so many, you know, tw decades, and I know how important it is to drink water. Uh, and then she comes home at lunch, you know, and that when I go to the restroom again, and then she gets me another pitcher, and then, you know, I wait until she comes home. And so I, I turned him and said, Can you show me how you get out of the chair? And he could get out of the chair. It was safe, but it was, you know, he, he was getting weak. I said, can you walk over there to the kitchen? And he said, yes. And I said, can you show me? And he said, okay, what I want you to do is I want you, instead of the vice president giving you a pitcher of water, and I said, I just want you to get out of your chair, you know, every hour and go get your glass of water in the sink. You know, and I can do that. And of course, I check on him the next week and you know, now he's walking around the house, you know, and then two weeks and he's walking around the block, you know, and, you know, within a month he's going with, you know, to the store with his wife and, you know, all I did was created, I, I had to find something that he was motivated to do. And once I did that, he corrected the problem, you know, and, and that was just, you know, that was all I did. All I did was change him drinking his water in his chair to go into the sink to get a glass of water. But it made a world of difference, you know, in his life and in his wife's life. Um, and I think that's, that's what PT can truly, you know, do for people's lives. And I don't think doctors can do that. I don't know of any other specialty. Maybe sometimes OT can do that, you know. Um, but our field is the perfect field to be doing those things. And, uh, and it's exciting because then you get the reinforcement that you know you did a little something and it causes huge change in these people's lives. Makes you feel really good. You know, um. So being visionaries, what do you see happening in the therapy profession next 10, 15 years? 
What's important? What's going to happen? I think we have to be much more involved in health and wellness um, and prevention. I mean, our population is getting older, and, and that older population is using more than 50% of the healthcare dollar. So if we make healthcare more available, I think that's great, and I'm hoping that we can figure out the problems that we currently have in healthcare reform. But I think that physical therapists need to be advocates for knowing what movement is necessary to, to stay healthy. And even if you have an impairment, if you have a disease, you have an injury, that we need to be the ones that say, how do you really modify you know, how you do that task so you can stay active and still you know, uh, participate in the things you enjoy, whether it's playing tennis or whether it's skiing or whether it's knitting. I, I don't really care what it is. If I have rheumatoid arthritis and I like to knit, it's going to be hard for me to knit. But I think we can figure out how to help people really keep um, active and we're going to have to be flexible. We're going to have mm -hmm. to be in the right place at the right time and we need the advocates and we need the public policy, the leadership, and we need to be there and we need to be flexible. We can't just stick, well, I've always done it this way and this is the way I'm gonna do it. Healthcare is changing and uh, we just need to be you know, out there. Maybe when you're 75 and it used to be, like my parents both died in the early 60s and I sort of felt like that's where I was gonna be, you know, and my sister and I are now in, both in our mid-70s uh, and we never thought we'd be alive. You know, we didn't realize how different our life is. You know, we weren't smokers. Our parents were smokers. We, our parents never went out and exercised and things like that. You know, so life is changing. And I think that we have an opportunity to change the lifestyle of people to really improve not only maintaining positive health, but should you have an impairment, which you will, how can you still be functional and enjoy your life? And I think we have the knowledge, we have the skill, we have the ability to really make that happen in a broader sense. That's, that's how I see. And it's part of a team. You know, you can't do everything. And I don't want to practice medicine. I, I don't want to be the one who makes the diagnosis and decides about the, you know, the medicine that they need. I want to be the person who says, look, let's talk about what you want to do and how you can do it despite your impairment. Mm -hmm. And we just need to be there. And I think empowerment of the patient is going to be the key. This patient's got to buy in to the fact that they're part of the solution. You know, it can't be done to them. They're part of the solution, and they have part of the responsibility of carrying out that solution. You know, or, you know, I think we're dead in the water. I think that society's dead because we have, we're going to have too many people who are, you know, being confronted with chronic diseases and they're not dying quickly, they're dying slowly, and um, you know they're going to be draining on society if someone doesn't do something about it. You know, and I, I don't think, I mean, I think healthcare reform is critical, and I think making sure everybody has adequate medical coverage is critical. Um, but I also do think that patients have to assume responsibility in the future and make decisions. You know that. I mean, I have a chronic illness and, you know, because of it I have to take certain medications and those medications, if I fall, could be life-threatening. And even though I love to do downhill skiing, 
and I love to be in the martial artist. You know, I don't do those activities anymore because one fall in either one could kill me. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't mean, though, I'm not responsible for maintaining my health. And I'm not responsible for eating, you know, correctly, or I'm not responsible for exercising. It just means I can't do those things, you know, that I once loved. You know, I had to make a choice. And I could have made a choice that I'm still going to be a downhill skier. And so I fall and die, you know, that that would be my choice. You know, that shouldn't be the doctor's choice. It shouldn't be the PT's choice. That should be the patient's choice. And um, I think the more we empower patients, the more they assume some of that responsibility, the better our society will become because then they become part of the solution. And that solution is what will drive the field to greater heights, I think. And, and technology. Yeah. You know, I have a knee replacement, so I run unweighted, you know, so I don't tear up my knee, but then I do that so I can still ski or play tennis and things like that. So I think technology does help us take impairments that are not as mm -hmm. Uh, you know, risky as, as the impairments that uh, Darcy faces, but there are a range of impairments, and you just have to try to help people match, you know, what's important to them, and, uh, you know, uh, Darcy still exercises, it's not like, I mean, she doesn't ski, but, you know, she's still out there on her elliptical and trying to be repaired and do the hiking, and I have to laugh to tell the story that she carried her oxygen, and we went to Lake Titicaca and we were walking up into, you know, this 15,000 foot thing. And I tell you, people were on this trip and she was giving them her oxygen, right? Oh, she was, yeah. There was one person who was going to die if, you know, that twice, you know, that exactly. it, was, it was scary. And then somebody fell and tripped and, you know, Darcy and I are trying to find the, <laughs> you know, the place to take them to get a walker and to get an AFO and to, you know. Because you're always a PD. Yeah. It doesn't well, and, matter and, where and, you are, right? And right. She, needed, she needed a boot. She needed to get her foot stable. And, you know, Nancy ran up to her room and the, the tour guide got the taxi and shoveling them in the taxi because they were going off to the orthopedic supply. You know, and so I hopped in the car because they needed a peep. Nancy was up in her room. They weren't going to wait. They were going to be gone. You know, and then it was fighting that she needs a boot. No, 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 we'll just put a little, you know, like AFO on. No, she needs a boot. She needs to have that foot stabilized. You know, and she and, did have and, a fracture yeah, foot. She did. And, you know, oh, well, here are crutches. No, she should have a walker because she's not stable enough to use the crutches. She's going to fall again. You know, and it, it, I mean, then you become an advocate. Right. You really become the role of the advocate for the patient. And patients need advocates. Patients cannot, I mean, this is my bias. I do not like to face a medical crisis by myself because there's too much of a strong emotional bond to that. You know, and doctors can make decisions that will kill me. And so I wanted to make sure, I'm thinking clearly, and the person that's with me is thinking clearly to make sure, give you an example. Um, I was in with probably another big PE, and the doctor wanted to do a contrast, you know, MRI on my chest. And I'm going, well, you know, I'm allergic to the dye. 
And he goes, well, is your throat ever swollen shut? And I'm going, no, I'm trying to prevent that from happening. You know. And he said, well, this is really important in the prognosis of the problem. And then he left, and I turned to my husband and I said, and how will they treat me differently if they verify I have a PE or they think I have a PE? And the nurse who had overheard this ran and got the doc doctor comes back. And I asked him, I said, what are you going to do if you know I have a PE? And he said, well, I'm putting you back on heparin. I said, and what are you going to do if you don't get that? He said, well, I'm going to put you back on heparin. I said, let's just put me back on heparin and avoid the kidney failure, the allergic reaction. And that's what I mean. Patients need to understand their own conditions and they need to have, if they can't be an advocate, they need to have somebody there that can be an advocate because otherwise, you know, doctors are doing some of the same or have done some of the same things we're running into now. I'm an orthopedic PT, I deal with knees. And I don't ever look at the shoulder, I don't ever look at the trunk, I don't look at their posture. I don't look at those, I only look at the knee. You know, and because I'm becoming so specialized, I'm losing the bigger picture. But the patient is, is made up of all those other things. And when you decide to change one thing, it can have a domino effect and flip everything over. And as a PT, we have to be aware of the same thing. You know, we have to. So we can be good advocates, I think. Yeah. yeah. That's a good role for us. You guys are falling asleep. Yeah. No, just me. <laughs> I want to thank you both for agreeing to meet with us and uh, talking to us about your thoughts about therapy and advocacy and all those other things. And uh, I want to again say I really appreciated talking yeah. to you. Or we yeah. really appreciate it. Yeah. And she is three hours ahead of the rest of us. Right? <laughs> That's yeah. right. Yeah. Let's just see. Almost it's time for breakfast. It's 1 a.m. Oh, my God. You're amazingly good. you amazingly good. <laughs> I can, you know, it was funny when they were, we were having the, the educational meeting for academic educational meeting up in, in Oregon, in Portland, and Neurocom was sponsoring a reception. And they asked me to host it, which was fun, you know. So I was doing that, and we were asking questions, and about 10 of our colleagues said, Darcy, you know, we've been, we've come from the East Coast, you know, it's 9.30 at night, mm -hmm. you know. And I'm laughing and I'm going, I know that. I said, now, how often do you ask us from the West Coast mm -hmm. to come to a breakfast meeting at 3 in the morning? Yes, mm -hmm. in Boston. Yes. yes. And that is true. It that is true. Is true. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So if I will be sensitive to you if in the future you will be sensitive to us because, you know, it really, it, sure. it's, you it's, forget. Yeah. You forget. It's much easier for me to go West. <clears throat> than it is for you to go east because mm -hmm. I'll adjust in a day mm -hmm. and then going back home is going to be hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, right. No, yeah. it shouldn't be. You just sleep on the plane and <laughs> go on with life. <laughs> yes, I agree. You know, I, I do not sleep I, on the plane. I, 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 I like on the plane mm -hmm. and yeah, I like lives in your life. I, I had the wonderful opportunity to travel the world teaching. You know, and I would take off Thursday you know, and fly somewhere and then teach Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then hop on a plane and be back by Monday in order to be back at work. And I used to laugh because I just never went off the time that I was on. Mm. Just never went off right. of it. Uh, 
you know, I, mean, I was tired, but I never. That's good when you can do that. Yeah. Yes. Because otherwise, you know, you, you your whole body is just totally out of sync. And I agree with Beata, you just need mm -hmm. to, you know. It's partially mental. I mean, when I first came, I always looked at the time. Well, in Germany, it's like uh, 5 o'clock in the morning or so. You know? But you have to stop it. I mean, if I get on the plane, I change my clock. And that's my new clock, and brain get used to it. And, and it does. <laughs> that's you know, called and plasticity. I and sometimes I teach next year, so I mean, like, so you can always learn. She's good at that. And, and you're tired. You know, you're tired. But I had a fantastic experience with Beate once we, um, we were. I guess we got we flew into Hamburg and then we went up to um, where was the first conference that um, in Heidelberg. In and that night we all went out to dinner, and of course, you know, Beate's smart. You know, she's Darcy. Don't go take a nap. You really foul your clock up. Just stay awake and you know. And so we did. And she was sitting at one end of the table. I'm sitting at the other. And everybody's talking German. And after 30 minutes, somebody said, oh, you know, we're so sorry. You know, we, we've been speaking German. Do you understand anything of what we're saying? And I said, well, I think you're talking about this and this and this. And they looked at me and they go, you speak Swiss German. And I thought, yeah, I don't speak German. But I did take German in college. I was so tired. I wasn't stuck in the paradigm of translating from English to German, I was just listening to them talk, <laughs> and somehow I got all the information, you know. And I, I kind of laughed at that because I think sometimes when you're tired, you actually do better. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Sure. Guy. Okay. 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 <laughs> well, I have to tell you. A glass of wine. And yeah, there you go. Now, that, now you're talking. I have to tell you, I was very blessed. I needed to hear that part about the master clinician and and that the researcher and that and the educator and all of that, that that you you guys talked about. I needed to hear that because I very much personally associate with that master clinician role. I'm not the researcher. I'm the one on the fringe saying, how, how does this work? What is this? And I need to find that researcher that then mm -hmm. I can connect with. Yeah, that, that's agree. the good thing. You know, yeah, I, that's a yeah. Because I'm never going to be the researcher. I could give a rip about a p-value. I really could. I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm not the status. I just don't care. But I care about what it means to my patient. Right. And I care about and don't you to feel really good when you read a study? Uh, I had this patient with a stroke who has had Achilles tendonitis on her unaffected side, right? So the more active I've made her, the more mm -hmm. uh, you know trauma on right. her unaffected <laughs> side. And and there was a great study in Journal for Orthopedics and Sports PT. And so I brought that article to her and I said, look, you need to put, you know, here's good evidence that if you put the orthotic in with a, you know, a heel lift, that you could probably get out of this sort of chronic, you know, irritation phase. I love it when I find something that works for you or works for you. And I, it's not just what I just said to you. Remember, I've been preaching this, but 
here it is. Look, I, I think you'll enjoy reading it, you know, reading the study. Mm -hmm. And people like that. Mm -hmm. They like Life. having evidence. Oh, and, yeah. For and if sure. I, I don't necessarily have to do it all myself, mm -hmm. but I have to be reading it and then share it with the people right. of, of interest, you know. And so that's what I think the, you know, the clinician needs that. Right. You know, and I feel better in my clinical state when I can do that. Right. And I don't think clinicians are given enough <coughs> credit. You know, I, you know, I had a wonderful, when I started studying mastership, you know, and what, what are the components? What, what are the cognitive learning styles? What are the effective learning mm -hmm. styles? And, um, and I had to present, I was one of the keynote speakers at a neurosurgical conference in Chicago. And so there were 500 neurosurgeons from around the world, and then there were, you know, 50 other. And I represented the 50 other. And so it was, you know, everybody's talking about basic science research and mm -hmm. science, you know, and, and uh, you know, I'm thinking, and then I had to go out to dinner with all the keynote speakers and all these people who had sponsored it, which are all neurosurgeons. And I'm going, oh, this is going to be a horrible <laughs> evening, you know. Doesn't even, sound like fun. No, no, you know, I'm thinking, but this is about the most linear thinking people I could ever run into, you know. And uh, anyway, the guru, neurosurgeon, that everybody wanted to get him to recognize them, you know, that mm -hmm. comes over to me and he says, um, can I sit and have dinner with you? <laughs> you know, because I'm, <laughs> I'm over in the corner, totally, right. you, know, you know, and I said, well, sure. You know, and he turned to me and he says, you know, I think most, many, there, some PTs and OTs are very intuitive. And that was his statement to me. With that, I knew him. But I'm not stupid enough to make an assumption that that's actually accurate. So I said, yeah, it's kind of like walking to a patient who's just been admitted to the hospital's room. And as you step inside their room, you know exactly where the tumor is and exactly what type of tumor it is. And he goes, yeah, it's just exactly like that. Mm -hmm. And I said, how'd you ever become a neurosurgeon? Because, mm -hmm. you know, it seemed like it was a mismatch. Mm -hmm. But it isn't a mismatch. You know, he said, well, I thought I'd become a psychiatrist, which mm -hmm. that matched. You know, but I had a horrible psychiatric residency, mm. and I had then a neurosurgical residency, which was fantastic. So I decided to become a neurosurgeon, and I went, yeah. And who is the guru in the neurosurgeons? It's this guy, and because this guy intuitively knows where the tumor is and what type it is, so he knows exactly the study that he needs to use to verify that assumption. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's always going to he's always going to use the study to verify the assumption because he's a sign, you know, and mm -hmm. we need to do similar. But I think master clinicians have that one upsmanship. They wouldn't go through the toolbox and test every right, right. test. They, there's no yeah. need to do that. They look at the patient, they say, "Oh, I know what test I need to use." And they use the test. You know, and I don't think we give credit to the clinicians the way we give credit to educators and researchers, you know, and administrators, you know, or people in private practice. We don't, you know, we don't give credit to those people that are in the clinic. Well, and what you said too about the shaking that doctorate, because <laughs> I'm a bachelor's trained PT. I always tell people I'm the dinosaur in the room, you know, and they're like, well, we oh, are no. too, you know, and yeah, but you're a little older than I am, you know, it's like the, you know, certificates yeah. and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I'm a bachelor's trained PT and, you know, I just wanted to get out and be with patients. 
that's all I wanted to do. I, you know, I, yeah, there was the master's thing was coming on the horizon. Heck with that. I want to get out there and be with the people. You know, I want to be with the patients. I want to try this stuff out, you know. And you kind of hit the nail on the head the way you articulated that. That that is something that can happen is shaking that. It doesn't happen at all, but in, yeah. in some. And that's not where it's necessarily at. And but we had, you know, as a bachelor trained PT, you know, I was trained three years in college. And then my mm -hmm. fourth year was a PT school. Mm -hmm. So I was even less than than most, right? Because mm -hmm. many of the people in my class had already gotten their mm -hmm. bachelor's and then mm -hmm. uh, came and, and did that one year of uh, a bachelor's program in PT. And then we gave certificates. Remember in those right. old days, you yeah. got a certificate and and then they were very critical about you shouldn't give a certificate because right. that's right. kind of a belittling way to, mm -hmm. to train people and stuff like that. So, yeah. And whatever. see, and that's so, what I think that the DPT avails the opportunity for a PT to be at the table. Yeah. Just like everybody else. You know, the, the doctors can't say, well, I have a, I have right, a doctor. Right. Well, I have one, too. <laughs> you know? Um, and Nancy and I, we, we don't ever use that. You know, other than we learn to use the doctor bill or the doctor mm -hmm. because it was professionally important, mm -hmm. you know, to do that. But, you know, Neither one of us are sitting in when a doctor says, I'm a doctor such and such. You know, we can both say, well, so are, I'm a doctor such and such too. How relevant is that in so this situation? So what? Right. Can this you get the person to walk across right. the room? You know, you know what, what does that have to do with, you know, the person we're talking about? You know, I, yeah. You told me that story about that patient, the, that time that you and I just talked in the hall. Uh, Cliff, was mm -hmm. his name Cliff? Yeah. And uh, I, I was really struck by yeah. that, that example. Now you put him in ice water for, or cooling. Yeah, well, cooling, I, you uh, know, I, I sensed that he was there and yeah. he wanted a way out. And, you know, he was very high-toned. Mm -hmm. He had been in a, in a vegetative state for over nine months. Mm -hmm. You know, he had to cubanize in his chest because he was oscillating his oh. arms like that and grinding his teeth, you know. And, and I thought, okay, I've got to wake him up. I've got to mm -hmm. bring him to consciousness. But I've also got to relax him. I so you know, what, what can I do mm -hmm. that could do both things? Mm -hmm. And of course, for me, cold water. Of course, and I'm also got I've got rain on, so that you know, with this vascular problem, rain? going in cold I, water is I, not a I'm positive thing. For me. Yeah, but I also wasn't going to allow you know do it without him doing you know me my hands being with him on mm -hmm. him mm -hmm. while I was doing it, and we started off you know with tepid probably 78, 80 degree water, and then we just added ice, you know. And the first reaction was about five days into this. We did it in the morning, early in the morning. And did you do it like a, like his whole body? Yeah, his whole body. In, in like, like a, like a, a hydro in a, in a, in a it, was swimming, it was actually, a, it was a bathtub. And I did it okay. with the nurse, the head nurse. And uh, the first reaction he had was an erection which to me was a reaction. It didn't matter yet, you know, and... In the cold water? In the cold water. <laughs> in the cold water. In the cold water. And, but as soon as, you know, as soon as the body began to relax in the cold water, mm -hmm. you know, then it was time to get out. Then I warmed him up. Then we did therapy so that he was moving very quickly. And mm -hmm. it was easier to move because he wasn't as, you know, tight. Mm -hmm. And it was about, mm, I'd say maybe the second week. I uh, 
walked in to Cliff. You know, I said, well, are you ready to get down on the mat today, Cliff? And he said, I want to get down on the mat today. And that was spontaneous speech came back like that. Oh, really? Well, what do you want to do today if you don't want to get down on the mat? You know, with that, I heard, well, I heard a tray drop and I heard pills go everywhere. And obviously, the, the nurse was carrying all the pills on the ward. And when she walked by Cliff's, you know, because I pulled the curtains. You know, and we're talking, you know, and she knows he's in a vegetative state. She just dropped all of the pills and they just went everywhere. Wow. And it was it was interesting, you know, but but I don't think, you know, he he came out. But some of the things that he got back were spontaneous. You know, I don't think I I triggered spontaneous speech, but I do think the PT treatment Relax the system enough to, to allow that. for that spontaneity, you know. And I think that's what's fun being a clinician. You know, those things happen. You go, okay, how'd that happen? You know, what just went on there? You know, motor programs are not driven by sensory, so we don't need to be paying attention to sensory anymore. Which has got to be one of the, my opinion, one of the stupidest statements anybody can make. But it shows us, you know, taking the research and saying a motor program is a motor program and it can run automatically. 